Tonight's New Testament reading comes from Revelation 12, verses 1 through 17, and it can also be found on page 3 of your bulletin. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them into the earth. On, to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one is who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who, had, who keep the commandments of God and hold, the and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. It's good to be here. It's always a blessing uh, to join you here, Grace Downtown Community, but I would say uh, it's a special, special blessing uh, to be able to witness uh, Jesse's baptism, to hear a piece of your story. Um, blessings to you, dear sister. Uh, what a delight, and a delight to see you also go back to your seat and hug and high-five your friends there. I'm imagining that's your little community group posse. Um, you're all a part of that story. You know that, right? Share it together and celebrate it like it's true. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray that God would do his work. Jesus, thank you for being the word made flesh, the one who communicates to us 
the power of God's grace. And we pray that now you would speak to us, speak your word to our hearts, and give us life, give us hope, uh, give us the power to change. And so we're offering ourselves to you. Speak now, your servants are listening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if any of you are fans of the Marvel movies, but recently my wife Paula and I had the chance to watch The Black Widow, starring Scarlett Johansson. And towards the end of that movie, there's a twist in the plot involving Natasha and her mother Melania. What you thought was a decisive moment of betrayal actually turns out to be a great moment of heroism and loyalty. And the way you find this out as you're watching the movie is through a powerful storytelling device that movie directors will sometimes use. The end of Ocean's Eleven also comes to mind. Where at the climactic moment, the movie rewinds the story and you rewatch the same scene, but this time you're given more information. Uh, you're given a little bit more of the dialogue. You're, you're given the story through a different camera angle, stuff you didn't see the first time that you saw the scene. And the audience, now totally blown away, finds out what actually happened behind the scenes. And the whole time as the viewer, you're saying to yourself, oh, that's what really happened. That is the same storytelling strategy found in the ancient blockbuster hit, The Book of Revelation. See, a lot of people reading this book think the sole purpose of Revelation is prediction, what lies ahead. But the book also provides spiritual perception, not just prediction, but perception, what lies behind. The point is not just to foretell but to offer intel, to rewind back through the story of redemption and to give a a fresh behind-the-scenes take on what really happened and why from the perspective of heaven. That's what we find in today's passage. That's what we find here in an invitation to rewind back to one of the best-known and best-loved stories in the whole Bible, the Christmas story, and to take another look from heaven's perspective. What was actually going on behind the shepherds keeping watch of their flocks by night? What was it that was happening behind the singing angels, the magi, the young mother Mary, the baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in the manger? What was behind the scenes of the nativity scene? Revelation 12 tells us. It was war, spiritual war. We see this actually across three really dramatic, almost sci-fi-like scenes that correspond to the chapter's three paragraphs. In the opening scene, the first paragraph, we encounter a great sign, a symbolic heavenly vision. And we're introduced to three main characters. First, There was a woman. You saw that. And by the way that she is described here, 
clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars of all things. Clearly, she's not just any ordinary woman. She's larger than life, literally. She's royal, in fact, wearing crowns. She's a queen of sorts. And we're told also that she's pregnant, crying out in birth pains. So, who is this woman? Well, of course, she appears to be Mary, the mother of Jesus. But if you squint at the passage at other times, she also looks like Eve, especially when you hear the echoes of Genesis 3.15, which we heard read earlier in the Old Testament reading, the serpent, the woman, the promised deliverer. And yet at other times still, the woman appears to refer collectively to the church. After all, the prophets in the Old Testament, they often use the metaphor of a bride or a childbearing woman to talk about God's people. So this woman, she's Mary, she's Eve, she's the people of God, the church. And maybe it shouldn't surprise us that this woman might have multiple meanings in this dreamlike vision. I mean, I don't know about you, but at least in my dream, sometimes characters will sort of shapeshift, right? I mean, one moment I'm talking to my daughter, and the next moment suddenly somehow I'm talking to my fifth grade English teacher, right? How that happens, I don't know, but that's what happens in dreams. How much more so in this dreamy-like apocalyptic vision that God has given us in this book. And then secondly, there was the woman's baby. We're told in verse 5, she gave birth to a male child. But this, too, was no ordinary child. He's a conquering king, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's a quote from Psalm 2, a psalm about the Messiah who subdues his enemies and who will reign across the entirety of the world. And what child is this? It's King Jesus, of course. And last but not least, there was a dragon, the great red dragon. You couldn't miss him. He is massive, seven heads, and he is destructive. He's got ten horns ready to fight, and he's furious with rage. And he's wearing seven royal diadems. That's crowns or or royal headbands, uh, little symbols of victory, because he's an oppressive tyrant, indeed a prince of darkness. This dragon is Satan. Verse 9 tells us so. That ancient serpent, referring to Genesis 3, who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And here he is seeking to devour the woman's child, seeking to do whatever he can to destroy the promised king. Did you know that was going on behind the scenes in what otherwise is typically depicted as a night of peace and quiet? Even the birth of Christ was an element of war. And this serpent, this dragon, moving about, seeking to devour this child, even by putting it in Herod's heart to satanically slaughter every boy in Bethlehem two years and younger. So threatened was he by the idea of a rival king. Well, this brings us then to the second scene in verses 7 through 12, which envisions a war in heaven. 
We're told that the archangel Michael and his angels fight against the dragon and his angels, and they were defeated. And as a result, they were expelled from heaven and thrown down to earth where the devil and his demons now roam with great wrath. This is a complicated picture, one that's hard to figure out, and you may know that there are several ways to interpret this wild picture. And among the better readings, one is that this depicts the fall of Satan and his demons, their original expulsion from heaven long, long ago. But another interpretation is that this is a snapshot of what took place in heaven during Christ's death and resurrection here on earth. For instance, what Colossians 2.15 describes when it says, God disarmed the powers and authorities, triumphing over them by the cross. Which is perhaps why in verse 10, there's a loud voice that announces in this scene about this war that erupts in heaven, the defeat of the devil and his demons, that salvation in Christ has now come. Either reading you go with here, either interpretation, the main point is the same. Satan, in a real way, has already been defeated. And if the second scene describes a war in heaven, the third and final scene in verses 13 through 17 depicts a war on earth. The dragon is thrown down, his tyranny broken, but his work of terror and destruction continues on earth. He's failed to destroy the child king, so now he moves on to target the woman. And here she certainly symbolizes, stands for the church, God's people. And so the serpent pursues her, spews water like a river of water out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, we're told in verse 15, to to drown her, to destroy her, to destroy us, God's people. But every step of the way is the theme in that paragraph. God protects and helps her. Yet even so, furious and frustrated, the dragon and his armies go off to prowl the earth and make war, verse 17, on the rest of her offspring, still waging war. That's the faithful offspring of Eve, the brothers and sisters of Christ. War is waged spiritually on earth, even as it was in heaven. That's a quick snapshot summary of all the craziness going on in this wild image, this layered and complex passage. But what does it all mean for us this Advent? What are some lessons that we can draw for us tonight? Let me offer up four. Number one, you and I are caught up in a cosmic conflict. We are surrounded by a spiritual war of cosmic proportions. But let's be honest, far too many of us, even among professing Christians, maybe especially among professing Christians who have gotten used to this idea, we move about our days with what you might call secular sensibilities, totally unaware that there is a spiritual realm 
beyond what our physical eyes can see. Recently, one morning, as my children were getting ready for school, putting on their shoes and their jackets, my five-year-old daughter just gasped and said aloud, Daddy, what is that? And it took me a moment, a few moments, to realize what it was that she was pointing at, but then eventually I saw it too. A a beam of the morning sunlight that had cut through the window and right through the room at just the right angle to reveal a bunch of little sparkly things floating through the air. So I explained to her that there's always dust in the air. We just can't usually see it. And then I think I actually unhelpfully added that, well, and it's really weird, we're breathing in that dust all the time and we don't even know that either. <laughs> Confused her a little bit, I think. Revelation 12 is that beam of morning light. And it's helping us to see spiritual realities that we normally don't see, though they're always right there in the very air that we breathe. As theologian Richard Lovelace has put it, we have replaced medieval superstition with enlightenment and modern substition, underbelieving in the spiritual, supernatural, and sublime. But dear friends, the devil is real. He's not the comical dude in the red suit holding a pitchfork. He is a personal embodiment of pure evil. He doesn't live in hell, hanging out down there in the fire among his minions. He's prowling around on earth. In the words of pastor and author John Mark Comer, The devil is not a fictional villain from a Harry Potter novel. He's a real and cunning source of evil and the most powerful and influential creature in the world. And he, along with his invisible occupying army of fallen angels called demons, are waging a war of destruction, of rebellion, and of darkness against the kingdom of Christ and the people of Christ. And you might ask, well, how does he do this? What are the weapons of his warfare? Well, this passage gestures to a few. First, there's the weapon that he has of accusation. You may know that the word devil itself means one who slanders, one who falsely accuses. The devil is constantly whispering in our hearts charges against God. Can you believe he just allowed that? Does God really love you? Do you really think he cares about you? Is God really good? Do you hear the whispers? Maybe it's all you've been hearing lately. It's slander against God. And as accuser, he also brings charges against us before God. He's standing this very moment in the courtroom of heaven, as it were, declaring to God, maybe even yelling at God, all the reasons why we should be disqualified from his favor. 
How can you, oh God, forgive this ungrateful sinner? And again, and again, aren't you a just God? You can't possibly love her. You can't possibly be proud of him. And so on and so forth go the false accusations against those whom God has set his eternal love. There's accusation, but there's also deception. Verse 9 calls him the deceiver of the whole world. In John 8, Jesus says of Satan, there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. It's almost the only kind of way he knows how to speak, telling lies. For he is a liar and the father of lies. And so it is his normal, instinctive work, this Satan, to make sin look attractive, deceiving our hearts, and to make righteousness look boring or ugly. This obviously is closely related to his work of temptation. The ways in which he obscures the the beauty of Christ or the way in which he uh, makes sin and evil look beautiful to us. The way in which he distorts the truth of the gospel. The way in which he offers us counterfeit comforts that soothe us for a time, even if they lead us into deeper pain and destruction. These are the lies of Satan. And thirdly, another way that he brings out a weapon of his is through the work of destruction, accusation, deception, and destruction. Satan, you know, that word means enemy or adversary. His whole existence is devoted to opposing the reign of God. I mean, so dehumanizing is the work of Satan that when he is tooling you, you got to understand it's not even you that he's concerned with. It's not personal. <laughs> he almost disregards you even in his attacks against you. His real concern is to tear down the kingdom of Christ, to block the spread of the gospel to inhibit the extension of the kingdom of God. And so he brings again and again into the world a full arsenal of attacks. Things that he brings against the kingdom of God, against the kingdom of light, he brings darkness. Against the kingdom of life in this world, he brings death. Against the kingdom of wholeness, he brings decay and disease. And against the kingdom of freedom, he introduces into this world oppression. And this is where we're reminded again and again that Satan's concern is not simply to run around tempting individuals, but erecting whole structures of society in this world that disseminate and preserve and proliferate evil things that wage war and battle against the very kingdom of God. It's why Professor Lovelace wrote again, the devil is the ultimate oppressor from whose bitter tyranny we all long to be freed. The unjust systems which starve people or enslave their souls are created by human tyrants, but their ultimate designer is Satan. He is the one, the mastermind, the energy of evil behind the worst of the oppressive structures and systems in our 
world, the things that bring darkness and death and disease and despair. Friends, we live in temporarily occupied territory. And we're surrounded by a spiritual war of cosmic proportions. As the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, the people right in front of us, but rather behind them. Our struggle is against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. But some of us live as if we're in a water gun fight. Some of us act as if we're just playing paintball, oblivious to the mortal combat all around us. Are you beginning to see it? Will you dare to believe it? Let the light of this Advent begin to cut across your vision in your room, in your lives, in your workplaces, in this world, that you might see things for what they really are. You are caught up in cosmic warfare. This brings us to the second lesson. This one's more brief. God will protect you in the midst of this fight. And so if these things are true, is he just going to leave you out there vulnerable and on your own? The answer is no. The answer of this passage is that God continually protects and nourishes his people in this battle. The woman you saw is threatened by this menacing, bloodthirsty dragon. But in verse 6, she flees into the wilderness, wilderness, like the Israelites escaping Pharaoh's army in Exodus. And there she finds a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished, taken care of, and fed. In verse 14, we're told she was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly out of the serpent's reach. Now, this language unmistakably is drawn as an echo from God's words in Exodus 19. When he said to his people after their rescue from Egypt, he said, I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. In fact, it should be great assurance and comfort to us to know that according to this passage, the devil has been waging this war seeking to tear down the purposes of God, seeking even to thwart and kill the birth of the very promised deliverer, the Messiah, seeking to wreak havoc against the people of God, and yet the purposes of God have prevailed at every turn. You see, this bad news here actually enlightens for us the good news that the devil hasn't won because God has continually protected and nourished his people. As Jesus says in John 10, 28 about his sheep, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And the apostle Paul offers these words of indomitable assurance. If God is for us, who can be against us? For I'm convinced that neither angels nor demons nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. 
Friends, you may not be unscathed in this battle, but you will be forever secure. But we actually have more than protection. We have authority in spiritual conflict. The third lesson. You and I have authority over the enemy. One of the great joys that I had over this past fall was watching my son participate in a local city rec soccer league, and that meant going to his practices, and as one who grew up myself playing soccer, being able to see even glimpses of myself and my son running around on the field and doing really well as he did, and, and yet I found myself at times becoming, you know, one of those dads right, on the sidelines, barking at the referee. And there was one particular time where I was especially justified, I know. (laughs) Frustrated at a ref donned in their referee's uniform in the black and white stripes with the whistle hanging around his neck. And yet, for some reason, every time there was a foul, he would just sort of run over and just talk to the kids and motion his arms while none of them paid attention to him. Uh, another play, a ball goes out, and he would never use his whistle. And I would just want to call out to him and say, blow the darn whistle, right? Let the kids know. Get their attention. Direct the players. Stop what's happening on the field. Someone that had the uniform, that had the authority, that was refusing, apparently, to use it. (laughs) I was one of those dads, I know. Friends, you have in Christ authority over spiritual forces of darkness. Even the devil himself. A dragon that you hold on a leash. You're wearing the uniform, clothed in Christ, bearing his name, his authority. And you've got a whistle around your neck. When the devil roams... You have the authority to get his attention, to direct him, and even to stop him. Will you blow the whistle? Will you exercise the authority which Christ has purchased for you in his death and resurrection? You see, here's the good news. At the cross of Christ and his resurrection, as we see in verse 8, Satan was defeated. The great dragon was thrown down and his angels were thrown down with him. And that's again why Colossians 2.15 tells us that God disarmed the powers of evil at the cross. And why 1 John 3.8 says the reason the Son of God appeared, the reason why Jesus advented, was to destroy the work of the devil. Even Thomas Watson, the Puritan from centuries ago, wrote, besides the two thieves crucified with Christ, there were two other invisible thieves crucified with him, sin and the devil. See, the devil's not yet dead, but the death blow has already been dealt. And so he's a wounded animal now, still dangerous, but he's a dying dragon. He's been decisively defeated, and that means that you have spiritual authority over him and his forces of darkness. 
And you say, well, what does it look like to exercise that? How do I express this authority over him? Do I just rebuke the devil? Is that what I do? Well, maybe. But if you take a look at what this passage says and how it directs us into into leaning into the authority that we've been given. Notice in verse 11 and 17, we find an almost surprising weapon of warfare. Verse 11, speaking of those who laid down their life even unto death, martyrs of Christ, it is said, and they have conquered him, the devil, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. And in verse 17, the dragon went off to make war on the rest of the woman's offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. First of all, notice that it says here, they have conquered him, Uh, referring to the people of God collectively. It doesn't say Christ has conquered them. It says him through them, they have conquered the devil. You have. Because of the blood of the Lamb and because Christ shares his victory with you. But notice also the way in which this conquering authority is exercised. It's through a most unexpected thing. See, we expect this passage to tell us to bring out like some supernatural thing from a Marvel movie, right? The the special weapon, the holy bazooka, something really to be able to defend ourselves and to defeat the enemy. What are we pointed to here? Here are those who have conquered him. Those who have a firm grip on the promises of God standing on the blood of the Lamb. Believing the gospel, which is precisely what the devil does not want you to do in all his accusations and all of his deceptions. People that are offering up testimonies of obedience and faithfulness. What? Well, I thought we were bringing out the big guns. Do you know how you exercise authority in Christ? You listen to his word. You lay down your life in ordinary acts of faithfulness and sacrifice, which is precisely what the devil does not want you to do, which is precisely what it is that extends the kingdom of God, which is precisely what he is waging war against every little act of obedience, every moment of faith, even a mustard seed of faith. Every work of self-denial where you put a roommate or a spouse or a child or a neighbor first, putting their interests and needs before your own, even your enemies, those who oppose you, every little act of faithfulness is a declaration of war on the kingdom of darkness, selfishness, despair, and death. I mean, the ones that are called conquerors, don't forget, are ones who were killed by the devil himself. And yet, from the heaven's perspective, they're declared the ones that have beat him. 
weakness, ordinariness, faithfulness, in love and in faith, in holding on to the power of the gospel. This is the way in which you stand tall against the one called the slanderer, the one called the destroyer, the tempter. This is our authority before him. Friends, you have the authority of Christ in this fight and never forget that no matter what else is true about him, the devil is always an enemy in retreat. Which brings us to the final point, very briefly. Christ's full and final victory is coming. Why is the devil so mad? You heard it earlier. Verse 12 told us. Because he knows his time is short. He knows there's an expiration date to the time in which he's allowed to roam. There's a time in which that clicking talk, uh, ticking clock inside of him is going to run down and he's going to be dead. He knows his time is short, maybe even better than we do. Christ's victory has broken in, and we rise up encouraged by that. And yet his victory, full and final victory, is coming still. And so now we can sing a hymn of praise, repeating and echoing the words of verse 10. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. That's Advent language. Right? Victory has come. Salvation has come. The authority of Christ and His kingdom have come. And yet we look out upon our world, into our own lives, and across our city, and we know that darkness persists. We know that death and disease continues even in this pandemic. We know that despair and decay still seem to reign. And as we lament and as we march forward in faithfulness and in faith, we look ahead to the second advent where you can almost start to peer over the edge of history where you can see the light breaking in. The sun is almost starting to rise And the victory is almost going to be brought to completion. And it's there that that beam of of light that's beginning to shine on things allows you to see promises like this one that you find in Romans 16, verse 20. This promise, in fact, this rally cry. Do you know it? The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Dear friends, do you know the Advent message? The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Let's pray. We long for that day. Oh Lord, hurry that day. Come, Lord Jesus. And in the meanwhile, keep us faithful. Keep us faithful and keep us faithful. We pray in Christ.